The old lady put her bloody saw down so she could rest. She lit a cigarette and asked which podcast I like best. Well, my favorite podcast is Sometimes Dead is Better. Dead is Better. Sometimes Dead is Better. With Chris and Chris. All right. Hello and welcome to Sometimes Dead is Better. And this is part two of our Parasite episode. Yes. So you're going to do a, a true crime yes. that I've not heard about yet. Yeah, but you were trying to guess earlier. I was speculating that it was going to involve a famous incident from, I want to say, South Korea. Oh. From the 60s. Shoot. I didn't. Yeah, it may have been uh, North Korea. I'm not really sure. But it did involve um, murders. What? At a house where people had... Um, basically infiltrate this family oh i remember i know this and then they, they broke in and they killed everybody right yeah so that's as far as i got i thought chris is gonna do that one and oh, i that's slammed so my keyboard good. down yeah. well now i'm just gonna i quit yeah but i probably you know mangled all that so well i'm sure there'll be another yeah. black comedy slash horror slash psychological thriller that's based in south korea yeah. so that but, we can do again yes i mean so i do research <laughs> oh that's great yeah i know that one too that one's pretty disturbing but it sounds like you, um, well, it's clear that you did not do that one, so. Well, I guess I, what I really liked about the movie Parasite was the idea of pretending to be somebody you're not. And that's what just really stuck with me. And so when I thought of a true crime, I immediately thought of this particular book that I have here. Oh, was, <laughs> <laughs> wow, that was a huge clue that I could have guessed. But I've been staring um, at the book for the past half hour. Well, so this is the story of Christian... Gertzreiter, correct pronunciation. German, so uh, also known as Clark Rockefeller. And so, I, when I first heard of this story, I read this book called "Blood Will Out." It's uh, written by Walter Kern. Now, I've heard of Walter Kern, but I'm not sure how. He also wrote "Up in the Air." Oh, this I've heard of him. Okay, there you go. So he's a this. That's a fairly probably recent book then. This was 2010, maybe. Okay, yeah, that's what I mean. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, and so this is actually Walter Kern's, one of his memoirs. He has another one too, but this is about him, but it's also about his relationship that he had with this particular uh, char character, um, Clark Rockefeller. He had a personal relationship with him. So I, I do recommend this book. It's not just about Clark Rockefeller. It's also about Walter Kern. So just, you know, know that going into it. Can I see it? Yeah. Because Kern also wrote another memoir called Lost in the Mediocracy, The Undereducation of an Overachiever. And that's about how he, he pretty much lied to get into Princeton. So he already had like this. Walter Kern did? Yeah. Oh. Like he, he kind of, he kind of uh, faked it a little bit. And he got into um, an Ivy League school and he never felt like he belonged there. He always felt like he was looked down upon. Because... Do you remember what specifically he, he lied about? Was it a great many things or? I haven't read the book, okay. but he, so, but so he pretended to be like a real, um, like existentialist, like artist type. Like, so that way he didn't seem like he didn't belong. You know what I mean? Like he kind of felt like if he acted a little crazy almost or eccentric then maybe they wouldn't notice that he didn't have this same upbringing as them you know or ask too many questions so it sounds like he had a have you heard of imposter syndrome yes i'm fascinated by that me too but that sounds like uh 
Maybe he had a case of that, perhaps. Yeah. Anyway, right? And then there's another book called The Man in the Rockefeller Suit by Mark Steele. He first had a really great article on Vanity Fair. I reread that Vanity Fair article to bring myself back up to speed with the whole story. So I'll put the link for that in there. It's not quite as long, obviously, as a book, but then he turned it into a full-length book, which sounds really interesting, too. And that's all just about Clark Rockefeller. So I guess we'll just get started. So in July 2008, in Manhattan, New York City, a man is arrested for kidnapping his daughter. Clark Rockefeller was with his seven-year-old daughter, Ray Starrow Mills Boss. That's a rich person, right? Right. Well, her first name is Ray? R-E-I... G-H. Oh, so close. <laughs> <laughs> Which he calls her Snooks. That's his nickname for her. Snooks? Yeah. So she's like referenced in the article as Snooks. That's his nickname. So Rockefeller had been through a nasty divorce with his ex-wife, who is the mother of the kid. His ex-wife, her name is Sandra Boss. She's a millionaire who was a senior partner at a management consulting firm. And after the divorce, Rockefeller was only granted three eight-hour visits with his daughter with a social worker. So on this particular day, somehow they they ditch the social worker, jump into an SUV, and peel out. Essentially, he's kidnapping his daughter. Then he meets up with one of his friends who drives them to Central Station before his friend who gave him the ride realizes that there's an Amber Alert out for his daughter. And then he gets back to his home in New Hampshire, I believe. Oh, so you mean the whole time the friend was taking him to the station, he never saw anything about the Amber Alert? He didn't realize that she was okay. being kidnapped, yeah. So the FBI comes in. Why? Because of jurisdiction? Yes. <laughs> oh, kidnapping. Yeah, kidnapping. yeah they have kidnapping, kidnapping. They and have... crossing state lines. Right. So they had a right to be there. It is fascinating why they have a kidnapping. I guess it's by statute. Anyway, it's not important. <laughs> so they contacted Sandra, who's the mother, and she had no information on Rockefeller. Like when they started to ask her real questions about like, do you have a social security number? Do you have his tax information? She had nothing. And she'd been with him for the last 12 years, but then she realized that she didn't know who this person was. So the FBI starts digging. They can't seem to trace this guy. The first call they make is to the Rockefeller family. I don't know how you do that. Do you just call up Rockefeller Center? Oh, so that's what was my question. He, was he really a Rockefeller? That's, that's what they're trying to figure out, right? So they call the Rockefeller family. Well, let me ask that a different way. Was he presenting himself as a Rockefeller? Yes. Okay. But the Rockefeller family says they never heard of him. Cool. He's not part of the family. So they start by interviewing the driver of the SUV and the driver, his friend who drove them. And then it just starts branching out into all these crazy stories. Every person they meet has a crazier story about this guy, Clark Rockefeller. Some of them thought that he had been in Peru. He told some he was in Alaska or the Bahamas. He had wine the night before at a friend's house and... The friend had not washed the wine glass yet, so the FBI was able to take it. Nice. Which I love that, too. Like, if you leave something behind, then they're allowed to take it. Or if you throw a coffee cup away because you are getting rid of it, then they're allowed to take that as evidence. They couldn't take it from you at the time, but if you get rid of it, then they can. That's how they caught the Golden State Killer, because they were watching him, and he had, like, a coffee cup or something, and because he threw it away... They were able to retrieve it legally. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. Well, so they ran the prints on it. Comes back that this guy, they sent it to Quantico, of course, where Duh. Scully was in the lab. Right. She ran the information. She said, these don't look like normal fingerprints, Mulder. <laughs> he was like, aren't you a doctor? <laughs> <laughs> Should he be doing an autopsy? 
So they find out that the fingerprints belong to Christian Karl Gertzreiter, a 47-year-old German immigrant who had come to America as a student in 1978. What you? I feel excited because I was thinking this sounds like Townsend Mr. Ripley. And on the back of your book, it says he's a real life Mr. Ripley. Oh, yeah. Like it's similar to that. And also it's kind of jinxy. Yeah. Which so, also I'm playing a fly that we need to do a talented Mr. Ripley episode. I just started that the other night. Oh, so good. oh my gosh. I mean, like everybody in the talented Mr. Ripley is so beautiful. But then they go to Italy and it's all beautiful and sunny. Yeah. Um, you can watch that movie on silent. I mean, and just enjoy it. You, you would enjoy it just as much because you wouldn't hear Kate Blanchett say wonderful things. But it's a beautiful, <laughs> beautiful movie. Yeah, we should do that. I mean, it's I mean, it's one of my favorite movies anyway. I yeah. mean, I, I kind of forget how much I love it, but I always want to watch it. Back in Germany, Chris meets an American couple um, on a train, and he Wait, charms them. Chris is the real... Okay, I'm sorry. You can cut out all my nonsense. <laughs> just trying to keep up. Okay, so he changes names about five times. So let's just stick with Clark throughout, but I'll let you know what when his name changes. All right, thank you. Because it gets very confusing. So at this point, he is... Christian Carl Gerhardt's writer, and he meets an American couple on a train and charms them. And the American couple is like, when you come to the States, you should come stay with us. But you got to be careful throwing that around because there are people like this guy who will show up unexpected at your doorstep. So he did. He came to Connecticut uninvited at their doorstep. He lived with them a bit, but then he found a home in Berlin, Connecticut, in the Savio home as an exchange student. This is the first name change he had. He changed his name to Christopher Gerhardt's writer. So he just split his last name up. He started telling people that his father worked for Mercedes. Um, But I mean, if you're from Germany, why not? Just sure. (laughs) No one's going to care. He started acting very elitist while living with the Savios. Like he would expect his food prepared and brought to him and his laundry done. So they ended up kicking him out. (laughs) He moved to the University of well, he's, he moved to Wisconsin and started going to the University of Wisconsin and started studying film. He changed his name again. He's going by Chris Kenneth Gerhardt. He had a quickie wedding to get his green card. And then he dropped out of school and moved to L.A., determined to be a movie maker. So once he gets out to L.A., he starts, he changes his name again. Isn't this confusing? How could you live like this? Yeah. He starts by going by the name Christopher Shychester a name that he stole from a teacher he had in high school. He even had a business card that was like a little bigger than a regular business card. And it had the Shychester family crest, nice. which he clearly made up. <laughs> and and um, a motto, firm and foy, meaning firm and faith. And it read Christopher Shychester, the 13th baronet. The 13th. So he tried to convince everybody. At this point, he decides that he wants to convince everybody that he is descended from royalty. He is descended from a duke. Like a duke in Germany? Or do they have those? Oh, I don't know. That's interesting. Um, I guess so, yeah. Archduke, all that. Well, this also reminds me of Andrew Kananen. Yeah. Which I rewatched. I don't know if I can go through that again. But no. <laughs> American uh, horror, uh, Crime Story? Or... American Crime Story? Is yeah. that one that, that one's so. called? Yeah, I think so. The Murder of Gianni Versace? Sure. Or the killing of Johnny Versace. Yeah. It reminds me a lot of Andrew Kanan, and he constantly lied, said that his dad was in the Philippines and he owned all these pineapple farms, you know, and he was a male model. And I mean, constant lies, too, with that guy. So he settles in San Marino, which is a very wealthy area in California. How does he have money to do this? I mean, I get the con part, but how is he getting money? Does, 
Well, I think he's conning these rich people. Sounds exhausting. I know. I think he starts to get really good at it. He also, well, we'll get into it later, but he just picks up. He's kind of like uh, the guy from Catch Me If You Can. You yeah. know, so he kind of fakes it. He's not as talented as that guy. But you'll see later how he kind of gets some of these jobs where he's able to make a lot of money for a short period of time, kind of sock it away. While he's in San Marino, he cons them and they believe that he is from wealthy ancestor royalty. So they give him his own TV show. They give him a public access TV show called Inside San Marino, where he goes around and um, interviews people. So, I mean, maybe he made money from that. Maybe he's getting money from being an exchange student or I don't know. Yeah. I mean, if he's in such a wealthy area, though, he just seems. Oh, well, he's also living with somebody like so there's in in San Marino. There's like three levels of like super, super wealthy. And then there's kind of middle class. And then there is also like a a poor section. So he's living in that poor section, like in somebody else's house. But I think he's kind of faking it to these wealthy people that he's wealthy. I see. So, and he's also saying that he is a film student at USC. He knows everybody at USC, but he doesn't actually go there. He's not enrolled. He somehow has access to the library. He somehow becomes a TA also. <laughs> so this is, so he's renting from a woman named Ruth uh, Soho, who so goes by Dee Dee. And so this is where it gets a little jinxy. So while living, she lives like, he lives like in the guest house of this woman. And while he's living there, Dee Dee's, son john moves back in with his new wife linda then not too long after john and linda go missing in 1985 okay friends were told that john got a secret job in new york with the government satellite program friends were told by clark (laughs) so they're getting like letters his mom is still getting was still getting like postcards from them from even as far as like Europe and stuff. And they were saying that they were in some secret government CIA program, right? Because that's what you would say. <laughs> yes. Well, also she is apparently an alcoholic. She's a bit of a recluse. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. This comes out later, but they start to put these facts together that at that same time, Clark borrows a chainsaw from one of his neighbors. Like Clark is kind of, he describes himself as looking like Niles Crane. Like he's, and then in, um, Blood will out, like Walter Kern describes him very, very well. He has like very pale, almost like translucent, pinky skin, like very thinning blonde hair. He's kind of short and he's not the, and he, not, not the kind of guy who's going to be wielding a chainsaw. So anyway, but that's one of the clues they get. Also, at that same time, another, another neighbor saw the backyard was all dug up and he said he was having plumbing problems. So we're going to go forward a second and then we'll go back. John and Linda never heard from again and then in 1994 skeletal remains were found in the backyard of his mom's house but this dude was long gone right yes there's actually a 1995 episode of unsolved mysteries about the san marino bones Mm. the bones were dug up under the swimming pool somehow christopher shychester which is the name he was going by at the time they said his name and then they put his photo up but again yes at that time he was long gone but so Unsolved Mysteries, he was a, what, a suspect? or Yes, he was the only clue that they knew of. Oh. Um, and all they had to go on was that Chris Shychester tried to sell the Sohus's truck to somebody. And then they tracked him to that, and then he disappeared again. So going back a little bit, in 1988, he was going by the name 
Christopher Crow. He was back in Connecticut, and people believed that he was a millionaire because of the way he carried himself. He was very fancy. He had everything monogrammed with CCC. He claimed to be a movie producer from L.A. And so then he started, I guess he got little jobs in between here and there. People trusted him. They thought that he knew what he was doing. One time he applied for a computer job. They ran his social security number, and it came back as David Berkowitz's, the son of Sam Killer from New York. How did he do that? I don't know. But he used his social security number for some reason. So then he somehow got a job at Nico Securities on Wall Street. Jeez. And again, this is just because it they It's took hard him to get these jobs. I don't understand this. Because, well, the guy who hired him apparently was like one of those good old boys who really cared about money. And he just kind of conned him, making him believe that he went... Because he also would memorize everything about... So if he said he was going to Yale or whatever, he'd memorize everything about oh, it. Yeah. And he'd know... It would kind of like the town's Mr. Carnegie stuff. Huh? That's like Dale Carnegie or Carnegie stuff, you know, the seven habits of... Oh, yeah. Or how to win plans and influence people. Right. But I think the point of this is I need to be more confident in my daily life you just, because... You just need to dress a little fancier, be a little more pretentious, be arrogant, I guess. I think it's the confidence. But he did eventually end up getting fired because they figured out he doesn't know what he's doing. But he was making like $150,000 a year, so he was able to get a, a good bit of money from that job. And then at that same time, the police were starting to track him down from the Sohus's disappearance. So he realized that he needed to disappear for a little bit. So he, he disappeared for a few years. And when he came back, he came back in New York City as Clark Rockefeller. There were a couple of theories that the Mike Seal said about where he could have gone. He, they also thought maybe he was um, playing the racetrack and maybe he made some money there. I don't know what he's doing. He's an enigma. So now we're in like 92, 93. He's living in New York City. He's telling people that his parents died when he was a teenager. He said his mom was the child star Ann Carter, who was in a movie with hum- Humphrey Bogart in 1947. And he said that she died in a car crash. So did he not have like a German accent or like how did that work? Well, he learned English and then he would watch TV and he he actually taught him he pretty much talked like the professor on Gilligan's Island. <laughs> and so he like has that same accent and mannerism and it seems like he just kept practicing and practicing it until he got rid of it. He also said he went to Harvard. I don't know how he keeps up with these lies. And there are some people who I think sense his bullshit and they kind of realize, but some people don't care. They like I mean kind of like in the killing of Johnny Versace. You see that some people are drawn to Andrew Cunanan because of that. And some people are repulsed by it and turned away. And they kind of get it. Yeah. I guess it just depends on your personality. I guess there's people in everybody's lives who, you know, you're kind of like, well, he's probably full of shit. But you don't use kind of let slide. And... Yeah. But that's a whole other level, obviously. Right. So he met Julia Boss, who introduced him to her twin sister, Sandra, who was getting her MBA at Harvard. So Clark threw a clue-themed party to impress her. So they had like a murder mystery type party. And they they really hit it off. They ended up getting engaged. Clark told her that he ran a business called Asterix LLC, which helped third world countries. So that's why he didn't have any money coming in. So he also somehow was renting this apartment. And he had a collection of what he said were million dollar paintings. He said that he had a Pollock and a Rothko and... I don't think any of these were ever inspected and deemed real. 
Did he just paint them himself? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if he bought them or that would be hilarious if he... But, I mean, if you could change your accent and change everything, maybe he taught himself I how mean, to... I mean, I could fake a Pollock, maybe. Like, <laughs> <laughs> if no one ever seen it before. But he claimed that he got these paintings from his grandmother, Blanchette Rockefeller, who had, ha- had actually died that year, the actual woman. Mm-hmm. And so he obviously follows the news very closely. You know, he's following... The Rockefellers, like they are, his actual family, too. He also had a, got a fancy dog, take it for walks every day in Central Park and talk about how he's a Rockefeller and just charm a lot of these people in New York. But so he got engaged to Sandra, but she was very, very smart, clearly. She got an MBA from Harvard. She went on to start working at a security company, and she was making like $1.4 million a year. She moved her way up in this company, and but she just really liked Clark. And she liked that he was a Rockefeller. Again, in Blood Will Out, he talks about, he goes out to dinner. Him and his wife go out to dinner with Clark and his wife, Sandra. And like Clark talks the whole time. Sandra doesn't really talk much. She's kind of more quiet. At one point, Clark says, do you want to go to Rockefeller Center? I have the key right here. And they were like, is there one like key to Rockefeller <laughs> Center? Like it was just kind of weird, you know? I mean, he wore ascots. He name dropped. I mean, he sounds awful. So his wife worked, made all the money, and he walked his fancy dogs around Central Park, which sounds awesome. I would love that life. Then so he starts to become paranoid and kind of abusive to Sandra. So she leaves him in 2000, but they get back together, and that's when she becomes pregnant. So then they're trying to stay together for the baby. He has some weird altercation. He gets in a fight with a woman at the park over dogs, and the police come. And he gets real paranoid again because, I mean, the police are actually after him. So he tells Sandra we're moving to New Hampshire. So they move to New Hampshire and he starts to have parties. He's redecorating a million dollar house. His daughter is born. Like everywhere he goes is like a tornado of just like nonsense. But he's using obviously her money. Oh, yes. Her money. And he's not working at all, I suppose. No. He just sort of. He also, out there, he's writing articles for the paper out there. And one of them is a plagiarized speech by Michael Crichton, which I just thought was just, that's what this is so interesting. (laughs) It's just just about dino DNA. (laughs) But that's what's just like, that's just like (laughs) nonstop. (laughs) Just crazy little snippets that keep coming up. So then he really does love his daughter. He's very devoted to her. He actually homeschools her and teaches her to read by the time she's two. So by the time she's five, she's going to start kindergarten, and she gets into a fancy school in Boston. So they move again. Sandra buys a $2.7 million house in Boston, and Clark starts all over again. He meets all new people that he gets to fuck with. He joins the prestigious Algonquin Club. At least heard of that, yeah. Um, and he would invite like people that he met to the club to have lunch, and then he strangely would ask them like he'd pay for it all but then later he'd come back and ask for the money or like whenever he goes out to eat with walter in the book he always forgets his wallet things like that so things get worse with sandra they're fighting again and so she finally she sends him divorce papers and he starts having to sell all of his stuff which is actually her stuff so he starts selling his antique cars and things like that that he bought with her money sandra's father William is her lawyer, and all he has to do is one quick Wikipedia search to find his first lie, the fact that 
The former child star, Ann Carter, who he claimed with his mother and died in a car wreck, was actually still alive. Oh, wow. So that was just one thing. And so once they started getting to the divorce, because he couldn't prove anything about himself, he had no documentation, and he was not willing to provide any documentation, she pretty much got everything in the divorce. Oh, like how do they even get married? Like what, like to get like a marriage certificate, like what do you, do you have to show some sort of ID or something? I'm always. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he got his green card way back when, right. but that was a different name. I mean, yeah, he's a real person. So but... I guess everywhere he goes, he somehow forges more doc- new documents. So crazy. Okay. And he starts a new file on whoever he is now. It is so crazy. So I think they settled for like, he only got like $800,000 and he only got that small amount of time with his daughter. So his final alias, he changes his name one more time to Chip Smith. And he buys a like a $450,000 home with fake cashier checks. This is all around the same time that he kidnaps Snooks. So we're back to where we started. So now he has kidnapped Snooks and brought him back to his house, which I think is in New Hampshire. He's living by the water and he takes him back to her house the police follow him there. They actually find a file in his yacht labeled Chip Smith. So this is his new file. This is him starting his new con. And they somehow get the landlord to call him and tell him to come down. And then they take him down and arrest him. And then they rescue the little girl. So he was charged with kidnapping, furnishing a false name to law enforcement, and assault because the social worker that was following them when they got into the SUV, I guess he grabbed onto the door and he told the guy to step on it. I guess it was assault with the car. He could, because the social worker could have gotten really hurt. Interesting. Yeah, that, that was interesting. Assault, actually, um, if you want to get into the weeds on it, sure. you don't have to touch anybody. It's, it just has to be a, a threat of violence. Oh. So that's probably, because like, usually, otherwise, it'd be assault and battery. Battery is the, the touching. Oh. Assault is just the fear of about to being. So if I tell someone, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. Yeah, well, they have to actually, I mean, you have to almost maybe make a gesture at them or something. There has to be a legitimate fear that you're about to be struck or hit in hmm. some fashion. Um, so that's and the And you assault. have to prove that. So they diagnosed Clark with delusional disorder, grandiose type, and narcissistic personality disorder, which also I would think on there would be histrionic personality disorder, which is another thing where you just make up stuff to get attention. Hmm. There was some guy we worked with at Barnes & Noble who was like that. Do you remember? He would constantly just make up things, and you just could pretty much fact check them pretty easily, and they weren't true. He was some guy who worked in the cafe. I don't know, but he oh, would just... Oh, Can we say his name? I mean, I can bleep it. Was it Ken? Yes. Yes. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, he would say... Yeah. Okay. He told me one time he was engaged. Yes, all kinds of crazy stuff. It's like, I know you're not engaged. <laughs> yes. First of all, you're like 18 years old, <laughs> and you don't have a girlfriend. Yes. <laughs> good yeah we can totally say his name fuck him <laughs> so he got four to five years in a state prison on the kidnapping that guy count. was a sociopath was he i mean my wills are turning right now okay but yeah we can talk about this later but okay. I, I think he may have been a sociopath i think he, i think so I colin think... has a lot of good stories about him too okay we should get colin on here yeah he'd, he'd be we good. should have colin colin <laughs> that was like you like colin, colin foster come on down <laughs> So he got four to five years in a state prison on the kidnapping count and a concurrent two to three years on the assault charge. Then in March 2011, this is where it gets really interesting, he was charged with the murder of John Sohus. 
that were buried. Well, unfortunately, the remains of Julie weren't found, his wife. It was just his remains. So they don't know what happened to her. But in the remains, they found two textbooks that he had also buried. One was from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where he was going to class in between those years, between 79 and 82, and one from the University of Southern California, where he had claimed to go to school. Well, and instead, he was in film classes. Why did he bury the textbooks? I don't know. <laughs> but that was just immediately, that was pretty much, well, that and the fact that he did have his truck and he tried to sell it. So that, and he did disappear around the same time that they disappeared. And a lot of it was circumstantial, but he still was given 27 years to life. So he was found guilty of the murder. I wonder if he thought, okay, someone's going to find this body in some amount of time, but they'll see these textbooks and they'll think somehow they'll misidentify this guy as someone else. Maybe. Maybe uh, they think he was like a, a guy who went to these schools. To the schools? And therefore, I don't know. That makes no sense, I guess. But I, That's not something that you would like accidentally drop in there. You know, like I understand like if you're burying somebody, maybe your glasses fall off. Right. And they fall no, in there. Clearly not on purpose, right? Unless there's a bunch of other stuff there, too. I don't know. Oh, maybe. Maybe it's a bunch of trash, and that was just part of the trash. In January 2016, he exhausted all of his appeals. So he's still in prison. So it's interesting. You kind of, I kind of think, like, how could... Because most everybody came in and out of his life very quickly. But Sandra was with him, his wife, for 12 years. You kind of think, like, on the outside, you're like, how could she not know? And then you read Walter Kern's book. And I mean, he wasn't married to him, obviously. He was a, a friend. But he just kind of went with it, you know? And, yeah. and Walter Kern's a really smart guy, obviously. Um, That's really interesting. Like, the whole book starts with how he met Clark was that there was a dog in Montana. Because Walter Kern lived in Montana at the time. And Clark found this dog online. And it was like a sick dog. It had, like, wheels for back legs, you know, all that. And he wanted the dog to adopt it. And so somehow it worked out that Walter agreed to drive the dog all the way to New York because I guess he was bored and he was interested in, you know, he's a journalist. So we thought what maybe something interesting could happen to meet a Rockefeller. But he ended up driving halfway and then he took a plane the rest of the way and he met Clark and gave him the dog. And the way he describes it is just so surreal. And then Clark, he thinks I'm going to get like, so I'm going to get like $10,000 or something. This is a Rockefeller. I dropped, brought this sick dog out the way out here. He gives him five hundred dollars. Mm. He said it's half of what he even spent on the whole trip. Right. Yeah. And <clears throat> but for some reason, he still was intrigued by this guy. Well, do you think I can borrow the book? Will you let me borrow the book? Yes. Okay. Thank you. You may. They were at some point in talks of making it into a movie with Benedict Cumberbatch. I think he dropped out, but now the director of The Favorite, Yorgos. That guy, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think he's going to be doing either a miniseries or a movie about it. And so that's where it is now. I'm sure that won't be at all weird. <laughs> yeah. It's gotten very dark in here. Like as we were recording, the sun went down and we didn't have the lights on. Yeah, I was, I was wondering when you would pivot. To... So it just got very dark. And now we're sitting in the dark. It's kind of spooky. I know. Now I'm getting a little creeped out. Clark's in my closet. I imagine I'm lit by the glow of your Apple laptop. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, so that is part two of Parasite. Again, I just thought of a parasite, and this guy is a parasite. Yeah, just, it's a good story. He takes whatever else he can and uses it to take things from other people. Yeah, it would be very uh, 
had Kai to do a okay. like my story. Okay. Yeah, we do what people don't expect. And we'll save it. We'll save There's it. so many more movies and so many more true crimes. All right. So uh, reach out to us. Let us know if I missed anything on this story or if you remember any facts that I forgot. I had read the book in a while. I'll read the book, then I'll, yeah. <laughs> I'll pipe up. That. Let us know if you read the book. Yeah. Or if you think of another true crime that would have gone with Parasite or anything else. We love to hear from people. We love to learn new things. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. Yes, that would be wonderful. We really like the comments we get. Yes, we really do. And then that helps us move up so that way more people can see us. Right. Well, get up. Get up. All right. Um, Bye. Good night.